Hi, Jay. Hello. How are you doing in New York with the comedy scene? What is it like over there? My last live show was March 11th, 2020. I haven't really been in the live show scene. I heard a lot of the clubs where we were at New York Comedy Club is our home base, Eitan and I, my comedy partner. And we were there and it felt, should we be here? Should we not? Everyone was scared COVID wise. So I think that was the last show that they had there. And they've found ways to do outdoor shows and drive-in shows, but I haven't really participated in those this year live. Yeah. Did all of them survive or are there any that have closed down for good? I know Rodney Dangerfields is a club, Dangerfields, that started quite a while ago and that closed down. The ones I do mostly are New York Comedy Club. They have two locations and they're still open, luckily. That's been pretty awesome. They've found a way to take their venue everywhere around the city, like rooftops and stuff like that. And I think a lot of clubs have done that, but overall they've lived in this weird middle ground where they don't quite fit into a restaurant and some live venues are able to be open and some aren't. So they're, in, they're not really able to be open. Yeah. In LA, it's been completely dead. None of the clubs have been open for at least a few months. I think now it's starting to re-engage with the public, yeah. but there are a lot of park shows. Yeah. Just been a bit scared COVID wise. And my son was born March 20th, oh. right when all this was going down. So I, yeah, I kind of just took not off. I've been filming quite a lot and writing a lot, but live show wise, my partner, Aton and I, we put that down for a sec and we'll get it going soon enough. Yeah, that's smart. Wow. That's a blessing in disguise for the pandemic to happen right at the beginning of when your child was born? Yeah, it was this, it's such a great, yeah, there are times where I look at it that way and times where I, because at the time it was just so frightening. Throughout the whole pregnancy, it was just amazing. Like no hiccups whatsoever. We're rolling into this, we're excited. And then it just, we're hearing about this virus. And then while we were in the hospital, the whole city shut down the border. I'm from Canada and my family had planned to fly in to be with us and the border closed. So all their flights got canceled and we felt pretty alone. And we, my partner, Aton, he's such a gem. Him and his wife hit up a ton of our like friends and family to send us Instacart and seamless gift certificates because they couldn't be there to help. So they were, this is their way of helping get us food and, yeah, that was amazing. So That's there was so a lot of sweet. blessings for sure. How thoughtful. It we cried. That was, we were in the middle of it, like in the hospital. Birth experience wasn't the best. It was pretty emergency, like the quarters wrapped around his neck a couple times. Oh. And every time she'd have a contraction, there was like a team of nurses that ran in and like alarms were going off because his heart rate would drop to zero, basically. So oh. we were just so, the doctor came in and was like, we got to get him out of there. And we found out afterwards that the cord was wrapped around his neck a couple times. So we were just in, and it was some, it was over, about a 32 hour labor. I felt so bad for my wife. And, and then we couldn't have family. Like I was the only one allowed to be there. And then that even changed just after he was born where I could, I had to leave. So I was just like in a car outside the hospital, like waiting for her to be able to be let go and we could go home together. 
So it was, yeah, <laughs> it was like, what? it felt, you could feel it in the hospital, like a team of security guards at the front door left that all to go get anything. I couldn't come back in and it, we ordered food. And then I had to reach through this group of security guards to get the food. It was, it had this Handmaid's Tale vibe. Like it was a different world now. And we were just new parents that had, were on, hadn't slept in 40 something hours. And he was not the best sleeper. Up until recently, I'm incredibly grateful for the full nights of sleep we've had in the last like month. But up till then, we're on fumes. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's been such a crazy year, such a mark in our lives. COVID era parenthood are one yeah. and the same. <laughs> wow. Well, comedy, I didn't mind putting, hey, I didn't have really the capacity. And we still got a lot done, Aton and I, we filmed a lot and wrote you know a screenplay and I felt like chipping away at stuff while he napped was my like because I love I can't not be creative for so long but I also was fearful of leaving going to a show and coming back to my wife and infant and yeah so it's been a year yeah <laughs> wait let's rewind to the giving birth what was that like for you oh it hurt so bad I didn't, it would only hurt the woman, but I, my empathy levels are just so high that I like felt everything with her. Oh, um, yes. That's, that's half a joke and half real. Cause I, we had plans of her mom and her sister being there. And I, I was always going to be there, always in the room. I cut the cord. I didn't, wasn't afraid of any of that. But then when it was just like, okay, you're the only one allowed to be in there. I, yeah, it just took on this coach role and partner and kind of shoulder to cry on. It, from the beginning, wasn't her plan. Like she had a very, if anything, in a perfect world, would have done like a home birth in a very like, very natural. And this was all the opposites. Like soon into it was poking and prodding and her heart rate and his heart rate. And she just had, and luckily we were in a hospital, honestly. We, and you don't think about that at the time. But afterwards, you look back on, wow, it wasn't what we wanted at all. But he is, we were hearing things about because his heart rate was dropping and he was losing oxygen that it might affect his brain. And we were just so afraid. And then all of a sudden, he's out and he's fine. And it's best case scenario. But those kind of fears and memories don't go away. So you're just kind of, you feel like you, it's like traumatic with a happy ending and then now and not even the ending is the beginning like you're now just parents it's not okay cool we got to the finish line done it's oh no here's a new life for the first time and i've never changed a diaper in my life yeah like waiting in the that emergency room there was a lot of like really freaky moments for both of us and we're both pretty sensitive overall so things affect us and yeah i think we had this conversation right before christmas that we looked at each other and we're like, I think we're coming out of this a bit, like coming back to life, so to speak, where we can get back to, yeah, things just feel normal and we feel like we got a grasp and know him better and his schedule. And we're not just in emergency mode or like, I don't know what the word is, but it's like at full capacity all day, every day. That feeling has just left recently. <laughs> yeah, that's very normal though, isn't it? Yeah. For the yeah. first year of their I, lives. I, I had no idea. You can read books and that's such a, a, she did a lot of the reading and, and 
I went to the birth class with her and we did a lot of research. And then right away you realize, oh, he's different than you hear a million stories and then you get a million and one is kind uh, of the, the way I put it recently. Because my sister is pregnant. She's due in April, my little sister, and we're very close. And I've been, you can tell when you, you tell people about what it's going to be like, they're like, oh, okay, yeah. And they don't really know until they know. And that's such a, you don't know until you so. Yeah. Life. Yeah. Life. <laughs> Life. Was it yeah. a trip for you to see this living, breathing egg of a being? Yeah. Yeah, he was so aware right away. Like, just kind of, at mm. first, I, I saw him when he, his, like, moments after birth have this kind of pissed off. I felt like he... <laughs> There's a picture of that. There was a meme on Instagram I saw where a baby came out just pissed off. I thought that was so funny, but I saw it in him too. He looked around like, what? And I could empathize with him like, oh, I was just in this warm, safe. I was like, breathing was happening for me. Feeding was happening for me. Gravity didn't even exist. And now I'm like, ah, like he just <laughs> had this curmudgeon old man look. And I was like, yeah, buddy, I feel that. And you could see it when you're feeding him, like, because breastfeeding and bottles is such a continuous thing that, oh, no, on the breast, it was like, oh, yeah, no, that then when we switched to real food, he would get a nibble of something and then get mad and start screaming at the food. I was like, oh, yeah, because he's used to, like, this constant food loop. And this is just one little bite at a time. He was so mad at it. And that was just that was funny. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but he's right away, I have all these videos of him day one, just looking around, having these, what's that? What's that? Like wide eyed and making little noises. And my wife and I joke that he was never really a baby. He would pick his head up right away. Like his neck was strong and he'd pick <laughs> his head up off your chest. Like you just, when you want a cuddly little baby to like, he never, ever, like the second he lays down, he gets mad. Like you're going to put him down to sleep or something. He starts shrieking. So he, you just let him be there and he's just like, <laughs> ah, ah, what's that? So I could tell there's a bit like a, and now he's walking already. He's like t almost, it'll be 11 months tomorrow. So he always, he already feels like a little three-year-old toddler. Like he's darting across the room saying words. I don't know how to describe it. It's all, it's the best. I'm pretty much a stay-at-home dad and her, she works from home as well. So we really get a lot of time with him, which is amazing. And it's, it's all the above. It's like the best times, then the hardest times, like seconds later, then it's back to the best. So I'm trying to live in this and just life in general, live more in the middle because I'm as a comedian and artistic person that's on this endeavor for since I was like 19, my highs get crazy high and my lows get crazy low. And that's just maybe just a personality thing in general, but comedy, I think feeds right into that where you have this amazing set or you sell a script or these things that are just like, whoa. And then things come back down and then what's going on, what's happening? So I feel like with fatherhood and with comedy and everything in general, and I'm really trying to live between three and seven and enjoy all, not to say to like numb the, the good times, but really soak, soak that up, be grateful for it, but know that it's okay that those highs can't last forever because they can't yeah can you talk a little bit about your beginnings with comedy 
Yeah, I at first was in a band. I was in this metal band in high school in the Niagara region in Canada, in Ontario. We had this awesome like hardcore punk metal scene, like these big bands, like Alexis on Fire, they're called, came out of there. And I didn't know how good it was at the time, but you'd have some show at the Lions Club and there'd be like 800 kids there. And it just, because there was, a, there was a small town and other than the mall or some forest to drink in or whatever, like if there's an event like that, everyone's coming, even if they're not really into that music. So I would perform these shows that I just thought were normal. And then, and they were really hard. Like I was the screamer in a band. And, but between the songs, like if guitarist was like tuning their guitars, I would love to just chat and try to make everybody laugh. Cause I was just always the, like the class clown growing up. I have like vivid memory of kindergarten. I think I was five and I made the class laugh. I did this, I just said something out loud. I remember it, I'm not, I know exactly what it was, but it was like rebellious against the teacher and everyone laughed and it never left. All through grade school and high school, teachers would call and beg my mom to put me on Ritalin basically. <laughs> Cause I was the like, I, this ADHD kid, they labeled me in the back room. And my mom luckily didn't because I know kids now that were on Ritalin, like cousins and friends that ended up having like addiction issues or yeah, I just like numbed them. And I was, I didn't know I was afraid of it at the time, but looking back on it, I'm just like, it's so thankful my mom didn't. Because I was that she was just like I described my son, you really have to keep him busy all the time or the mind wanders to like, what's that? So in a classroom, I felt bad for teachers later on, but at the time I was just so bored and my entire goal was to just make everyone laugh in the class. And a guidance counselor told me to, there was this program at Humber College in Toronto. There was a two year diploma course for comedy where it was like these second city, I don't know if second city. In Chicago where Steve yeah. Colbert came out of. Yeah, and Steve Carell, and then in Toronto, they have a mat where it originally started in Toronto because of SCTV. I don't know the exact history of it. I think it's both Toronto and Chicago, but the one in Canada had Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara and Martin Short and a ton of like huge comedians in the 70s and 80s. And a couple of them, this guy Joe Flaherty, taught at Humber sketch comedy. And there was other like, stand-up teachers then there was writing there was like screenwriting and improv and there was a whole curriculum basically and it was a two-year course of a full-time college course of comedy which was insane it was like all those class clown kids like in one group and trying to keep us you know all in line was probably insane because we were fresh out of high school and fresh out of uh mom's house like i was i felt like a beast out of the cage but my parents were very strict growing up very like Roman Catholic, had to be in earlier than everyone else type thing. So getting whatever I happened to do, not even just comedy, but just going two hours away from where I grew up, away from the family for the first time, I was just like ready to go and I met the best people there. I found it strange that a guidance counselor told me about this course because I graduated high school and still didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to take a year off and I just nothing. I had the only decent grades I had were in like English creative writing and drama, like the theater. Makes sense. And yeah. And it was because it was just so fun. And I didn't, my mind didn't wander in those classes because I was genuinely interested. And I think she saw that and was just like, 
and my parents probably wanted to kill her for this. You should be a comedian. Like you're the funny guy. You can do this. And it's a two year course. And I did it. And I, and it was a good, it's insane to go up to your parents and say, I want to be a comedian. If say you lived in a place like Toronto, like I lived in such a small town that comedy scene didn't exist at all. But if I lived in Toronto and I just went out and dipped my toe in it here and there, it wouldn't feel like such a choice that I had to tell my parents about. But this thing like, hey, there's this thing in Toronto and I really want to be a comedian. That was such a, like my dad's a painter. He paints houses, mom's an accountant. I, they were trying to get me to stay local, to go to Niagara College and figure, whatever, be a welder or an electrician. Or it was a very like blue collar town I came from. And a lot of my friends ended up doing stuff like that. And I just had this feeling, I gotta get the fuck out of here. And I loved it though. I loved my hometown and didn't have the feeling of leaving the town, but leaving my house. Cause I was such a rebellious, it was like at home, my dad is a very, like his older dad, he's born in 1951. And we're very great right now, relationship wise, but as a 17 year old or 18 year old, like he was my, my rules, like my house, my rules type thing. And I was like, okay, then, then I got to get out of your house. Cause bye. And I, yeah. And then years later, we started having a much better relationship, but yes, comedy was because it was the only thing I really was ever decent at. And it had this kind of fuck you rebellious vibe to it as well. Not just to my parents, but I don't really feel like I exist in this world. Like, whenever real life shit comes up like taxes or I don't know just the, the life stuff I get so angry and I that's where maybe comedians pick apart that kind of shit and are able to because we live like just outside the world we have to exist in it it's either that or a house out in the forest somewhere but we like being social as well so finding a group of other like-minded silly zany weirdos at Humber there, I was just like, you're all like me. And, and, and everyone was different too. It was like different, but the same. And there's a judgment too, but it's, it, it's a, with my group, there was like three groups of 20 uh, in the class, in the cur curriculum and my group of 20, I could see the other ones were a bit more like competitive and didn't really get along. And a lot of those people ended up dropping out and stuff. But my group of 20 randomly in Toronto is still like, and in Canada now, like known massive comedians. They're still doing it to this day. This is 04. So this is 16 years ago. And this random group, because we had such a great time together and would go up and bounce around to do the, all these open mics together. And the sketch troupe that I joined, the boom we were called in Toronto, there was 10 of us and seven of us were in that class together. Cause we were just like, okay, let's all be best friends and do comedy together forever. Like, I liked the band element of it and stand up I did for a few years, but it was so lonely. I, you, yeah, you get all the laughs, but you're like in your own head all the time and you have, you hang out with other people, but really you're your own boss. You have no one to answer to, but yourself. And I wasn't really motivated that way. And I didn't have the best time doing it. So I found that this group of people like Aton Millstone, his name is, he's my, still my partner to this day. We've been working together since 06 when we left Humber we was our first sketch show together with the boom and we were called boom shakalaka back then and and we still we just work so well together and I love 
not having someone to answer to, but someone to just keep me going. Like when I'm left to my own devices, I find I put things off. I procrastinate pretty hard because the work itself, a lot of times, eh, it feels like working out or something. But knowing that I have a partner to, oh, we have a call at you know three and we're going to talk about this kind of stuff. Okay. And then I show up and I don't want to be the weak link and not have anything prepared. So I, that kind of motivates me a lot. It's always better with two. Yeah. Especially when it's someone you really love, admire, and respect. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like marriage of sorts. Like we have so many chats that a lot of times don't even have to do with comedy. We just got to check in because we're best friends and moved to New York together eight years ago from Toronto. Made that sort of, we did some cool things here. I think we should go for it. Let's, and he just came up to me one day after a show and was like, let's move to New York in January. And it was only like September. So it was like three months. Let's move to New York. And I'm like, all right, done. And I just like, no question. Got rid of my job and my apartment and sold things, gave things away, came with a backpack and a suitcase. And yeah, it's a classic like immigrant story here, like off a mega bus. And we've been here ever since. And yeah, he and I have had some crazy highs, crazy lows, but we have very similar goals and that's hard to find someone with similar goals. What I love about comedians is that you guys are yogis, but a different strain of yogis, deep philosophers and observers of the world and society around you. I could talk about this stuff all day, every day, like not just comedy or I know we got into dad stuff and, but just, yeah, we're big ideas. Like ideas to me are the most important things. Like I don't really... Sorry to cut you off there, by a chance, but I'm just like trying to go off your thought there where I was like, yeah, physical things I don't care much about, cars or things at all. I just like ideas. And if they're funny, game on, or interesting and thought provoking, and I just, I can't get enough. I would just talk about philosophy, uh, history, and try to make it funny or not. Sometimes I, I think I'm at a stage where I used to, it was only, it had to be funny or it was like, because I was just my entire existence, but growing up a little bit and realizing, oh, there's so many other aspects of life than just trying to make people laugh. Now I, I'm just, I don't know, interested in talking (laughs) to people. What is that gene in comedians you think that makes them so empathic and aware and in tune of what's going on around them? That's such a great question. I felt like I've had it forever and I don't know how to describe it, but feeling a room and whatever room I happen to be in, like if it was that classroom or a party or a comedy, like I can, I feel the vibe of the room and it's, it's all I think about. And I try to either, I just blend into it or not, I guess fix it isn't the right word, but if there's something off, it's like a people pleaser thing in a way that I'm trying to get away from because it can be very taxing and it's not my, you know, job to in everyday life to try to like make sure everyone is having a good time. That's my entire MO from my teens to maybe, I don't know, five years ago, I guess, until I had like a bit of a, like a, realization and I just matured a lot more in the last few years but I I don't know it's that's such a great question because 
a lot, there's so many empaths out there that aren't comedians, but I think to be a decent comedian, there's no way, or you're just a great writer, like maybe funny people that don't have that thing end up maybe just writing funny things or can be comedic actors because they can play their role in the funny. But to be on stage and to make hundreds of people laugh for an hour straight is, there's no way to do that separate from them. Like you're one person in the room of, say there's 200, there's 201 and you're one, you happen to be facing this way. And sketch comedy, we do a lot of sketch, but I found that has a more of a theater vibe where you put that fourth wall up and you're just playing your part like a play and people are, you can feel them there and they're out there laughing. But when we go into stand-up rooms, we tried to bring the sketch comedy element to stand-up rooms. And instead of just doing a sketch, we'll talk to the crowd, make jokes. And then instead of just telling a joke, we'll say, we'll act it out. And because it has more of that, like, we're in the room with you as well vibe. And those usually just get way bigger laughs than just doing something funny that someone's watching. Cause they could just do that at home, I guess, watching TV. I, your question's so good. It's going to make me think for a while. Cause I, yeah, I don't know. I know that cause there's so many great friends. I have great comedians that I have listened to that think that way. And I can't like, can't put my finger on it, but yeah, it's there. <laughs> yeah. All of my comedian friends, I could sit and talk with them for hours because of how. <laughs> Thanks for doing stuff like this. I'm so pumped to like, not just like one, cause I've just been with an 11 month old for a year now. So, <laughs> so getting to talk to another adult is the best. And, and just talking about this kind of stuff, like anytime you or people show interest in the arts and because I know you're such an artistic having worked with you on set. Yeah, I could tell you're obviously very artistic minded as well. And whatever you do, I can tell it's there. But and I think artists and comedians and musicians like there's a common bond there for sure where I can talk to musicians forever, like friends of mine that are in bands. I'll have a drink with them and then four hours goes by and then we're just like, I don't want to leave because I, I don't feel like I even got to hear enough about their like their process. Like that sort of artistic process is very interesting to me. Yeah, it's definitely a breed of a type of human for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but comedians in particular, you guys hold a special place in my heart. One, because you don't take yourself so seriously. And <laughs> can, for sure, I'm trying, I'm actively, I just said this to my wife today because things were going awry around the house this morning and I had to like audibly say out loud, let's just laugh at ourselves here. Let's laugh at the situation because if not, what else? We're just going to sink until you can make things much bigger than they need to be without laughing at yourself. And, but the second you try to, I love your point. I love like comedians that don't take it so seriously because I catch myself taking it seriously a lot because especially now that I have a son and I feel like it's for real now, like this year, for some reason, I felt like, okay, no more fucking around. Like all that time before this wasn't playtime. I was working my nuts off and like getting a lot done. 
it was a lot of fun and I had a lot of drinks after those shows, but there's almost a bit of a regret now because that, that I didn't do enough pre sun because now I'm seeing the amount of time in my day whittle down to next to nothing. And I'm like scrambling during his like hour and a half nap to bang out like a couple pages or something. And then it's never, cause I'm oh, just getting into it and he's up. I got to put that down and it's just changing my entire workflow. But yeah, but then I end up taking it seriously. Like this has to be the thing. Like it's no longer just this funny thing I want to make. And if people like it, they like it. Cool. Now it's a sort of, okay, how does this equate to paying rent and bills now? Because you can't take it too seriously or it's not that fun and it's not that funny, but you also want it to be your life and your like the way you make money. So there has to be, I can just try to, the way I said it to Aton recently is like the left brain and right brain need to separate. And while we're writing or while we're just, just fuck that left brain, it's all right brain. We're all just blurting out everything silly, no judgment. And then take that and afterwards like dip into the left brain and become your own producer or your own manager where how do we make this thing profitable in some way or get people a large amount of eyes on it or whatever the end goal is for each specific project. That's been yeah. my challenge this year. Yeah, I think that's for any artist is how to, how to bring it into the marketplace and profit yeah. off of what and you're I doing. I hated that forever. I was such a like punk, hardcore, like all the things I love don't make that much money. Like my favorite bands in the world are unknown, haven't been a band for 10 years, but never did anything more than their local little scene, maybe a little tour, maybe had one album and some that like I thought back in my high school days were millionaires. They must've been cause I had their CD and like I had Jay-Z's CD and I had Poison the Well, like this band I loved in high school. So they must be on the same tier. Yeah, art and commerce. That is the formula, figuring out how the two relate yeah. to one another. I hated money forever, like I still do, but I know that it's like a necessary, like in my maturing in the last few years, because <clears throat> forever I was that like, just do our own thing. And our own thing was abrasive and like our group in Toronto, hardcore. Like we were, people called us like the death metal of sketch comedy. Cause it was like, we'd have fake blood and everything had this metal. And we would play like some of our sketches would play metal and violent rap lyrics. And we were just didn't want to be these like theater nerd sketch comedians. No disrespect to sketch comedy. We love those. They're all great friends of mine as well. But I loved like these other group, our other members all had a hint of darkness to them as well. Like this kind of yeah, edge. And we were 19. And then even up till 25, it still was there. And I didn't give a shit. And then all of a sudden, I used to get a little bit older and realizing I still want to do this. I love it. And I don't want to keep doing these other jobs. So how do I and then Aton and I like we still we do a lot of shows and we have found ways to make money as comedians. And it's been the best. But just not as abrasive. Like we're just like it still has some some edge to it and it's still everything we want to do so I would do it anyways but it just doesn't say fuck every two seconds or it's not as like aggressive <laughs> yeah yeah what I meant 
earlier about taking it seriously, I meant more so as, you know how I'm sure you've seen, read, and heard situations that happen within culture and society where people are apologizing left and right yeah. for what they're saying. That's what more I was talking okay, about. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I don't think you should too. bag on a comedian for what they say. Mm -hmm. It's not that serious. It's supposed to make you laugh. It's a joke. Yeah, why yeah. do you expect them to apologize? And two, I know. why are you getting so offended? Am I supposed yeah. to hold your hand and walk you through your process of being triggered? That's not yeah. my problem. That's your problem. Yeah, thank you so much. I could tell you're a big fan of comedians. Like, <laughs> that's such a plight of the comedian in the last few years. And we've tried to walk that line because I still want to say what I want to say, but I don't want to just actively go out there and start. We've never really been the hot button issue comedians. There's a lot of great ones that are friends of ours that naturally, like, they do talk about what's current and what's going on and give their take on it. And I see them, I know they're great people, but then they take shit online or it's almost like comedy it used to be you could do a sketch say this really fucking fucked up sketch from i think i was like 19 wrote the sketch it was like if pedophiles started found the error of their ways and they started hitting on regular aged women and it was like uh, this greasy like pedophile character that i played hitting on women in a bar and it'd be like do you like candy and they're like, yeah, everyone loves candy. Like, what? And it just, it's, it was so like dark and weird. And, but I feel like now it's, oh, that's not your, like, one just saying that word is people get, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, and I get it. It's a triggering word. And I, and like, it's terrible. Yeah, of course. It's the worst. And it's, but I guess my <laughs> point is, yeah, it's terrible. It's, can't believe I, it goes without saying. <laughs> but it's not the same. Joking about it. And doing it are, is my point that it's not <laughs> like you can joke about things yes. like racism and it's not if it's an unfunny joke it could be construed as racism because it was just like someone said something and it didn't really get a laugh and now that's but it's now he was trying to find or she was trying to find you got to work it out you got to find where the funny is and to do that you might step over a line you might not go far enough you might just be a lame but it's in the works and some a little nugget of funny is there and there's really no other way to find out if it's funny than to like test it out and say things now people need to see that oh that's your story to tell i think too like you can't just joke about racism unless like you deal with it on a, a personal level and now that's your story to tell but it can't just be like a take on it. Like comedians, how we said earlier, if we feel like we live outside of the society and we comment on it, then we're gonna comment on all the things that are happening. Some aren't that nice and some are just silly and nice and cute. And, but either way, there's a commentary and to not allow for commentary kind of sucks. Like whether it's funny or not, like even just talking, like people, not even just with comedy, but I know in general, people are afraid to bring up certain topics, even just around the dinner table, because they might take shit for it. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, the other day I had a conversation with someone where it almost sounded as if they were spewing off bullet point topics that were listed for them by extreme liberals. 
-hmm. And when I started asking more questions, they couldn't really answer it because they didn't have the knowledge or the thought, but that scares me. And these are the types of people that are getting mad. Yeah. About they'll they'll be offended first. And that's, I think, virtue signaling, they call it, where it's a sort totally. of, I need to show that I, like, in a room of, we do a ton of shows, and you're in a room of all these people, and then if someone voices that they're offended right there and then in the crowd, or after the show needs to come and tell you that they were offended by something, it's, it's pretty egotistical to think that you specifically, out of the couple hundred people in the room, you're the benchmark, like you're the, hey, I need to let you know that what you said, not just offended me, but is offensive in general. It's like holding up a flag saying, I'm the leader of this group of people. And we all think that what you said was over the line. And it's almost like if they don't say that, they feel like they're part of the problem, that they feel like this guy that's saying sexist jokes went without uh, being confronted and now they think like this comedian can thinks he can go around s- spreading this trash so I need to let him know that yeah we, we we don't like what you just said and it's I don't know it's this very it's not the same as like yeah joking about something and that thing are two totally different things that's why there's laws if you do some things you go to jail for a long time you go some things you go to jail for a little time and these, some things are just like a slap on the wrist, like fine, because there's levels of, and talking and just joking about something isn't the same as going out and actually like being racist. You're just joking about racism in general. Yeah. And even going beyond just jokes, right? Beyond comedy. Mm-hmm. I feel that there should be a level of discernment within oneself to know what is actually wrong, what is a, a principle of, no, this is not human, this is not humane, this is not yeah. correct or right. And yeah. then what is my trigger? What is my yeah. past yeah. relationship with whatever the thing it is that is making me feel this way? Because, good example of this, I forget who, someone posted a photo of something on Instagram about their eating disorder. And a Mm -hmm. bunch of people responded with, oh my God, you didn't tell me this was a trigger warning. I have an eating disorder. You just made me feel this way, blah, blah, blah. When they were just talking about themselves, why are they responsible for all you other people online? They don't know you. Yeah. Go to to therapy, go work it out, go write in your journal. Like like the, the comedy club, isn't the place like i'm the most fuck the power fuck the man i was in that the women's march when trump got elected fuck that guy fuck i just have but so i'm on people's side if i see something someone hurting someone else on the street being blatantly racist being blatant just yeah fuck them i've been in many fights in my day back in my younger days defending kids from bullies and defending like I have this kind of like social justice warrior vibe in me for sure but when it's about like you just said like the time and the place if it's something happening and what is this eating disorder person like doing that is so offensive like talking about their personal experience take it or leave it or move on or whatever it is like things are triggering it's the world it's we walk around town 
New York City, wherever the hell you happen to live. I, growing up, was in like a couple like fatal car accidents where I saw people die in front of me. And now I can't be mad when there's a car around or there's like things that I'm dealing with and have dealt with over those years. But if anything, go towards more, I don't know. That's why I think I've gravitated towards dark comedy or kind of like aggressive kind of metal music or if it's, it helps in a lot of ways. And to like just shun, shut all that away, pretend it doesn't even exist whatsoever. And just, it's going to make me not able to deal with a real emergency situation. When this, my wife's pregnancy I dealt with earlier was turning into an emergency situation, it felt okay. Like I, and I've, it's happened in the past. Like someone has, you know, fallen off their bike in front of me and was bleeding from their head. And I like jumped right in, wrapped my t-shirt around their head, called 911, dealt with like things just get, but you people go the other way as well, where they, the PTSD of it, and it's happened to me in some occasions as well, where I saw blood and got faint. And, and I don't know how that all works. Obviously, that's a whole different conversation. But the point is, it's not on anyone else. To, if someone happens to bring up a car accident, or if someone happens to bring up an emergency situation, like I make it about me somehow. Like, it's just so self-centered. <laughs> yeah. What happened? What happened in society that made everybody so sensitive and crybabies and unable to differentiate the two? Is it Maybe, the internet? I think the social media thing, because it allows you to be both all the time, like the contributor, like we're creating content right now and people are watching or you're the viewer and maybe pre social media was just like, okay, there's entertainment. There was TV movies and then like entertainment news where you like got to hear about celebrities and their lives and stuff. And now that is just, everyone's become that like everyone in their own, whether you have a hundred people listening to the podcast or a hundred thousand or a million, you have an audience. So those audience members feel like if you love a band, you feel part of this sort of club of the fans and you're hoping they put out a good album. And if they don't, you're disappointed. You might even let them hear about it. So you're like letting people know, and not just that, but stuff like Yelp, maybe stuff like getting to comment or tell people how Mm. you feel about everything, like leaving reviews on Uber and Yelp and like everything, Google reviews like every little business my my sister owns her own biz small business in toronto and like ton of amazing reviews and all of a sudden you see one and it's so i think you it's natural for everyone to think that their specific opinion can help change like twitter as well like that what i say here is gonna affect the overall world or at the least, let everyone know where I stand on it. That's my, my thoughts on that. Oof. Because then you get to be your own, like you, you have this podcast and the things you decide to talk about, that kind of like becomes the content. And if I, you have a guest on, I randomly said things about pedophilia and car accidents and shit. Now they're like, those could be the key words that when people search for they go oh what is this some some people are on the hunt to to get offended then i don't know it's this weird little yeah offend me yeah yeah i can't wait to tell it's got this kind of i don't know they love it too they love 
<laughs> people are bored, huh? <laughs> That's what gets them off during the day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Stop watching TV and do something with your yeah. life. <laughs> yeah, you, it becomes your life then if you're on there and you feel like you're interacting by, by saying something. Yeah. You're, get, you're getting your little dose of socializing, but it's not real. You can call like I joked with Aton recently. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go have a unrecorded hour podcast with my sister. And he's leaving just a phone call. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to call my sister. <laughs> we're not going to record or anything, but we're just going to talk. She's going to ask me some questions. I'm going to answer them. Then I'm going to ask her questions. And she's going to answer them. And then but we're not going to record or put it anywhere. We're just going to have this conversation. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what scares me about the way that a lot of people communicate of what you just said of online feeling their sense of socialization, right? Is that it's not natural. It's not normal. You don't feel empathy behind a screen. You yeah. don't understand nuance and feeling and body language and, oh, I hurt your feelings. Explain why, how, what did I do? Yeah. What did I do to offend you? And then you learn yeah. and you grow and you evolve and you don't repeat the same mistakes. Whereas if yeah. you're not being called out by your friends or your family or the people in your community and you're just behind yeah. the screen, you have a very false sense of reality of what the world is. Yeah. You can tell you, you will say things online that when I'm like, if arguments in past, in the past with a, a friend that we're no longer friends anymore, the things you like text back and forth, it's so different than if you were just in a room talking to each other. There's always that filter of love you, man. This comes from a place of my ego is a little hurt when you said that. So that's why I lashed out. And because you're natural, whether you're a comedian or anyone really in a room, you don't want to, it's nine times out of 10, don't want to be the one screaming at someone and caught like you want to come to some kind of reconciliation so your language reflects that rather than just like it's a bit more robotic online because you get to just write it as if it's like an essay and you're just trying to sound smart and you're trying to sound like succinct like every word and then blah, and mm -hmm. you get to buy got them mm -hmm. and then sure enough it's never that's never the end of it. It's not like someone on the other end is going to see it and go, uh, they got me. Yeah, that was, wow, that perfect sentence that made me see the error of my ways. And now I know, okay, thank you. Best of luck in the future. It's always, oh yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, so toxic. Yeah, you just feel attacked. And then you get, if someone said they were offended by what I said, there's unapologetic it rarely happens like Aton and I are very we don't have a very controversial act at all there's a couple that get like an oh ooh, but not in a, it doesn't have this point of view of like political or racial or it has a just like an edge to it but everyone can I don't know how to describe it exactly but for in back in the day when the things we did get people coming up after a show and saying how offended they were or <laughs> oh, really? boycotting the show saying that, Hey, if you're going to do that sketch, let us know. Cause we're not going to go. And people would say that to you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Many times we did a really like the act. It was a long time ago, but it was like, we're two like Catholic school boys in my old, like high school uniform. I went to a very Catholic high school. So we got some uniforms and 
the talent show was coming up at the school and we were like, oh, we got a little something for the talent show. Maybe we do some music. And all we could find was my older brother's violent gangster rap, like NWA, Eminem, just like violent 90s gangster rap. So we're like, oh, we'll do a little rap rhyme for the talent show. And we're like cute little kids. And then the music starts and it's that really, like I got a sample from The Exorcist and these horror movies with that really like 90s, like boom bap beat. And we were just like, you fucking can't, bitch. Y'all fucking like this, like, par- like we we're like, okay, are you ready, Ricky? Ready to okay, one, two, buckle my shoes. Like, I'll fucking cut you. Off. Like it was like, but it was this the satire of innocent minds being corrupted by just, oh, yes. this is music. I don't know, like when you're that young, the only music you know is what your parents play around the house, and then around that age, you start getting your own tastes. Oh, I loved like, you know, The Offspring and Green Day. And then I found like Wu-Tang Clan and loved New York hip hop for some reason. I loved it so much. And that's just music to me now. And I heard a bunch of things that I was like, what? Like, what? I was like eight years old when 36 Chambers came out. And right, it was like, bring the motherfucking ruckus. Bring the, and I was like, like <laughs> what is, I'm a kid in a cornfield out in Canada. And I, I loved it. It was the best. It was, and I still love it. I have a Wu-Tang tattoo. But, uh, but the joke is just, but then people took it as, oh, you said this word, like you said cunt, or you said rape. And, and like those words, like are, hey, just to let you know, like my friend was date raped and I don't like to hear about, and I'm like, I, so I, and I felt so bad. We were like, 20, like 25 or something when we came up with these like characters and mo- like people got, we are, it was nuts what we did with that show we like for like three or four years that in toronto that rick and chuck we were called was just like this kind of phenomenon happening in toronto where we were just like in every room people were like what the fuck is this colin mockery from whose line and like scott thompson from kids in the hall and judah friedlander and just these like we were like open for these like massive names and like people and then the article would be about us after it was like these psycho kids and they're like, you got to hear these. And it was a lot of good, but then there was also the, so I took it as like, back then my younger self was a bit unapologetic where, oh, okay, sorry. But then after little by little, like you keep doing stuff like that. And I got a bit older and I was like, I really don't want to like keep dressing up as this Catholic school boy and saying horrible things. Like I'm over it. It was a good run. This isn't a thing that I'm going to keep doing into my 30s. So let's just be done with it. And it was around that time that like, yeah, you could tell the vibe was changing in comedy. Like it was because we grew up in a, like in comedy 04 till 2012, 2013, 2014. Like the goal was to be fucked up. Like the people that were successful doing it were, was Louis C.K., Bill Burr, Dave Chappelle. Like Dave Chappelle was the most massive influence on my career personally like the stand-up part and the sketch part I was like oh sketch doesn't have to be these like theatrical tea party like cutesy plays he did that Clayton Bigsby like black white supremacist I'm like (laughs) holy fuck and that was the most successful thing so in movies too like the most successful movies were r-rated like sex drugs rock and roll and we're kids we're like 19 going oh yeah you think that's you have as artists like musicians and comedians see what's happening and go 
oh, you think that's fucked up. I'm going to, we're going to take it to a fucking crazier level. Then we did all these crazy sketches about like a catch and release abortionist. Like that would like hold up, like we had a baby, like a uh, doll that was like covered in like jelly and stuff. And it was like, oh, we got a seven pounder. And it was like a fishing show. (laughs) Yeah, that's nice. Look at the, yeah. Okay. Oh, we're going to put this one back. He's not quite ready yet. Yeah. We're going to put this. And then we, and it was just like, we just had these insane. Oh my God. (laughs) Fucked up sketches. Like we would, like I'd get naked on stage. And, oh man, this guy kissed my balls on stage. (laughs) Uh, We had this sketch like Nuts About the Movies, it was called, where we would do, it was like Indiana Jones. And I came on the little hat and the music. And there was a line of my friends in with pen darts. And then it gets to that sand where he has to trade the bag of sand for the idol. And then I drop the bag of sand. I'm like, oh, and I just take my balls out and switch it for the idol. And then this guy comes out on stage and he's like, we're nuts about the movies. And then the, the other one was the, the Spider-Man kiss, the upside down kiss. And it was like, oh, Spider-Man, thanks for saving me. And there's my friend, Josh, in like a red wig, like Mary Jane. And I had the Spider-Man costume upside down and like the, he unfurled the mouth and it was my balls. Ew! And he kissed them on stage and people lost their fucking, there was like 200 people in the crowd and people were like, oh, like, cause we did a monthly show and it was like, how can we outdo ourselves from last week? Like this, we're promoting it. Some people come every month. So we're, we did a brand new two hour show every month. There was 10 of us. Like we pitched all these new sketches the first couple Sundays of the month. And then the ones that got in, we'd rehearse and then the show and it was like then you burn those and start again and it was like a lot like two hours of content a month of sketches and but it was like always trying to outdo ourselves but then all of a sudden the times kind of changed till you really got to watch what you say you got to like themes like things like that you could tell the keywords and that's what was happening with the rap thing it wasn't that the joke like they weren't thinking about the the overall satire of like violent rap lyrics and little kids it was that, oh, you said that word offends me. Or you said, you talked about that specific topic and that offends me. It's you're pinpointing these little, like I'm supposed to go in and delete certain things to make it for you. That's not how it fucking works. And I, and it happened around the time, like I said earlier, that I was maturing a bit and realizing that I don't want to be the guy out there. It's such a youthful male. It's, it's twenties, teens, fuck the world kind of attitude that I stopped my, I lost my edge and I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> you grew out of it. Yeah. Sorry Wait, so hurt. hold up. Dave appreciation hour. Shout out Hello. to Dave for finally getting paid through Comedy Central. That show changed my life. I loved it so much and his movies and his stand up and Chris Rock in the night. I was just like, and I didn't know I could go out and do that. I never thought of it until that guidance counselor said, hey, you can go do this. And I was like, what? And I was 19. I like the band ended up disbanding and then I started comedy and I was kept that sort of like Chappelle. I don't know the the whole, it was such a great, that era. I think, yeah. Oh, four, I started comedy. So his show I think was still on maybe Oh two to Oh four or something like that. Must've been right around the time he went to Africa. I don't know, but he's always been such a huge influence on me. Yeah, me too. He's a beacon of light for me of how Truly. he stands true to his values and will not conform. Yeah. 
Yeah. You saw that he finally got paid, right? For Chappelle's show? I didn't. I only saw that the last piece of news, I think, was that someone took it down because he asked them to. Like, yeah, uh, so Netflix and HBO Max took it down. Yeah. Because he asked all of his people to stop watching it because they wouldn't pay him because he left for Africa. So he finally mm. got paid through Comedy Central. They okay. called him, gave him his millions. Okay. Everything wow. is good. Wow. Okay. Because the power of the people, everyone yeah. stopped watching. Yeah. That's a good thing about having social media and you can reach people on a personal level, which is great. Not to just solely shit on totally what we were talking about earlier, like just social media. It's been like in this quarantine, I put out dozens and dozens of videos, like not being able to do live shows i get a funny idea i can go to instagram and or youtube or whatever and just be funny and that 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 part's pretty amazing yeah what are you doing now for comedy we have this series that launched on youtube march 13th 2020 like right before all this went down called youtube comment theater that we take youtube comments from videos and use that as like the script for the scene. So we'll film a really like cinematic scene and all the dialogue is YouTube comments. And that we've released, I don't know how many, maybe 20 something videos this past year. And we're just writing. I've, I've always been into writing screenplays. I luckily sold a couple screenplays in recent years and one I'm waiting to hear notes on. I sold one recently where I'm now just waiting to hear back on some notes to finish the draft before pitching it around. So I chip away at screenplays a lot during the day and then just film my silly little, my little video on the Instagrams. Are your screenplays all comedic or? Yeah. yeah. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah. I love writing. I want to do it way more. Such a thing to say. It's so funny. But yeah, when I do get the chance to sit and really bang out movie scripts that's my goal I came like a couple that I've sold in the past were so close to being filmed like by legit production companies and it just for whatever reason didn't happen and now they're back in my ownership to go try to sell them again and Aton and I yeah we have plans to film a lot this year like short films we've done a lot of in the past and I want to get more into that. I want to do like filmmaking. And then when live comedy, like in 2019, we were doing a ton of live shows all over like Canada and the US, like festivals and just headlining clubs and stuff. And then COVID just paused that, but it sucked at first, but now I know it'll, there'll be definitely like a boom of sorts when things kind of start coming back to normal and people are excited to get out there and see live comedy again. That I'm excited for. Yeah. Yeah. What are the main spots in New York? Our show is at New York Comedy Club. There's two locations, on one on 4th Street in the East Village and then 24th Street. It was twice a month at New York Comedy Club where we got to do 20 minutes and that was the best. And, and then just get like random spots here and there. But man, that'll be fun because I haven't done that in a long time. <laughs> yeah. Coming up on a year, I haven't gone this long without doing comedy in uh, forever. 
since yeah since I was 19. It's Damn. Nuts. What does yeah. that feel like inside? I, I think just when I, it comes in waves anyways, I, I'm not like the, there's standups, like strict standups that are just out there like four or five shows a night or just every night. That's just their entire life. And they just addicted to the stage and that's their livelihood as well. But we've always had more of that theater sketch comedy thing where the writing of the show, then the rehearsals, then like, like less shows, but they're bigger. Like in, we didn't really bounce around doing a ton of smaller shows. We would just have this one big event. And so we, with our New York Comedy Club show, that monthly that we do is like the Comedy Records show where Comedy Records is this label in Toronto that also represent a bunch of American comedians. And if you're on that label, you can be on this show and they give us 20 minutes, which is amazing. So we get to do, try out a lot of new stuff and just tighten our other stuff to then take on the road to do our like hour headlining set. Cause our, yeah, 2019, I think we, we did 50, maybe definitely 30 hour long headlining sets. And then a bunch of like 20 to 40 minute middling or headlining sets. And that was a really good year. That was fun. Yeah, fire. Yeah, it was great. We'll get back there. But I don't miss it that much, to be honest. There's a lot of other, like, my stage fright is insane. Or Oh, whatever really? That, whatever that, I don't even think stage fright. It's more like the anticipation, like the anxiety of a show that in the day. It, like, there's the show itself. And when I'm on stage... It's the best. It's so much fun. Like the best, but then a lot of lead up to that. I'm such a ball of anxiety. Still? Yeah. I'm such a, and then they call our names. We go on stage and it's like, and it just fucking releases and it's uh-huh. so great. Uh-huh. But a lot of the lead up, I don't have the best day on show days. I have, mm-hmm. I don't eat and cause I'm just nervous. And then I just pacing around. I don't know what it is. Maybe a perfectionism thing where I feel like it needs to be this like, like a lot of comedians are really good at just, eh, if this show is whatever, then I'll do one 20 minutes from now at some other place. And they can, it rolls off their back easily. And I admire that more than anything because I put a lot of, I don't know, a, a lot of onus or a lot of like myself because if it doesn't go that well, I'm just, it sucks. It's the worst. I'm pretty all or nothing with uh, live shows. Mm. <laughs> When's the first time you felt bombing? Oh, right away. Like I had the, my first few shows were phenomenal because they were at Yuck Yucks in Toronto and you're like uh, set up to succeed. It was, people did bomb, but it was only like this three minute set and there was all these other kids there from Humber and all these like open micers and then, but like a real crowd, like it was pretty packed. Like it must've been like 150 people in this room. And it was my first time ever being on stage as a stand-up. And I like, after looking back on it now, it's just cringeworthy, like terrible jokes. And my, I was such a frantic psycho. I was just like doing laps around the stage, like a little tornado. But I got, la- every joke landed and I got massive laughs. So I was just like on top of the world. Wow, my first time, I'm a fucking killer. I'm going to be the next Robin Williams. This is insane. And then, but that show only happened once a month because there were so many people trying to get spots that 
even if you like right away, I was like, I got to get this show again. They're like, okay, we have this opening next month. And I'm like, and then you go to school and you realize like the stand-up professor, <laughs> so funny to say, words like that. <laughs> my professor in stand-up comedy was like, no, you need to do, you need to be out there every night. Like this is a muscle you're going to, one, you need to just learn how to do it because you, you're so green. You have no idea how to do it properly. And then, and right away I go to these other little open mics and felt that, oh, this is going to be way, like I got brought right down off my pedestal. This is going to be really hard. <laughs> That's happened a lot in my, not just, like I got the first audition I ever went out for and people are like, that doesn't happen. And then that first year of auditioning, like I was booking everything. Like for some, I don't know what it was, like all these commercials and TV shows in Canada and my agent was just like, who the fuck, who the fuck are you? Like, where did you come from? And then sure enough, like I didn't for the next couple years. And it was like, yeah, the kind of, it's very, I was like, fuck. There's been all these times where I've just been like, like our first shows as the boom with Aton rammed, like 200 people losing their minds, best fucking thing ever. Even the second one. And then, oh, you're going to keep doing this. It was like a monthly show from 06 till 2012 end of 2012 so we did count like one every month for six years but the like third fourth fifth show people were like I, like people get excited because you're a kid you're like 20 21 you doing a show oh my god we come check that out like this one event but to you it's like that wasn't just a one-off thing it's something i want to keep doing so i think everyone's really pumped to come out to like support but then the third month, the fourth month, the fifth month, it's those kind of brought me back down as well. And I've found in a lot of different ways, it is such, I was playing a really short game. Like I need to be the best ever right now. I want to be this like child prodigy phenomenal at this, but it's been this like long road with highs and lows and all, because you just want to do it forever. So obviously, yeah, you just get, best times ever and then oh shit I just bombed so hard like right away like just crickets and then you even like comment on how shitty it is and then that doesn't even get a laugh then you're just like oh god like I <laughs> you just want to crawl away and and I did I would just like all right thanks bye and then fade walk, into the like, curtain <laughs> here's the mic to the to the host and just walk home if it even took an hour to walk home, I would just like, in my head, like that was, I'm gonna never do that again. That was the worst. <laughs> Man, those moments though of bombing and a failure, such great learning moments. You never know that till years later. Yeah. Or people could, I don't know, for me anyways, like at the time was just like, I'm a piece of shit. I'm, I'm nowhere near as good as I think I am. And you're just like, inner tyrant voice like berates you for like how dare you put us in that situation the one side that's like fearless and wants to do that then the other side that's just like how could you fucking think those jokes would work in this room how you just pick yourself apart because it just felt like utter shit but some people it rolls off their back i would ever fuck this by yeah <laughs> and i see that in the, like open mic rooms and stuff people are just like eh fuck y'all okay peace and I'm like, oh, I would kill for that. I uh -huh. would kill for that fucking energy. Like they just truly, and you could feel how much they don't give a shit. 
Uh-huh. And I care so much. I fucking care. I want them all to love me. And if they don't, and it's for me to my little ego that was told over the years that I couldn't do this or whatever. And I need to like puff that up. Like I am going to be the best at this. And then that even gets brought down and you're like, Oh fuck. <laughs> I can hear my son losing it out there. Oh really? Okay. Long, much great. Fun. Yes, so much fun. Thanks, Jay. I'm just so excited to talk about comedy. <laughs> great to see you. Great to talk great with you. Congratulations you. on your so much. expansion of your life in all Thank ways. You. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.